It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Matt, for those of you who I haven't met. And uh, my uh, family and I got the privilege of going on sabbatical uh, for the last four months. Last Sunday was our first Sunday back, so we're sort of fresh off sabbatical. Uh, really excited to be engaged again in the life of the church. And if you're curious to learn a little bit more uh, about uh, how that sabbatical went, and what God did in our lives through the course of that sabbatical. I shared in depth, uh, maybe in too much depth, last Sunday about it. I was like, oh, I'll just get up and share a few thoughts. And it was like 55 minutes. Of, oh, okay. I guess there was a lot there. Uh, but we shared in depth. That podcast is up if you want to go back and listen and you're curious about what we did and, and how God met us uh, during that time. Uh, the, that Sunday functioned as the last Sunday. We kind of ended our series that was summer-long, four-month series on practicing the way of Jesus or living like Jesus did in order to be um, continually formed and shaped into His image uh, for His glory in the world. Uh, and this Sunday, we are starting a new series called Apostolic Foundations, which is probably foreign language. Uh, to most of us, but we'll become more familiar with it as the series goes on. We're uh, starting into that new series this morning, which I'm excited about. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3, chapter, oh, chapter 16, verse 16, uh, and we'll pick up there in a few minutes. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 16. Uh, coming, coming in with fresh eyes uh, for the church I've noticed a few things. One is, is just the beauty of community and being in community and how much we need one another, uh, not just time and silence and solitude with the Lord, but also engaged in meaningful and genuine community. And uh, it struck me in a fresh way this morning, just how many kids we have in our community. Uh, you, people were coming in and like couldn't find a chair and we're like putting out new, more chairs for people and all of a sudden the kids leave and it's just, whoa, there's like this giant vacuum of like, oh. Now I'm like sitting all by myself on a little island, and there's, where, what just happened? Uh, there's a lot of kids. Um, we were thinking about making a cap for family, but I, I don't think we will. Um, so we're starting a new series this morning, Apostolic Foundations. The heart behind this series is to uh, essentially do what Paul and the original apostles did when they were first establishing the church. They'd go into a new uh, place, uh, preach the gospel, see people come to Christ. But as the very first communities of Jesus' followers were formed, uh, they became churches. Uh, how do we fill the earth with God's glory and the knowledge of God? We, we plant churches. Uh, that's what they did, and, and that's what we're to do. How do you go out and start disciple-making movements, disciples who are going to make disciples who will make disciples? Well, it's through uh, church planting is this vehicle. But as soon as these uh, first communities were formed, Paul and others, the original uh, apostles, would um, lay a foundation in those churches. They would um, give those churches the most basic things that everything else was to be built on in terms of what is the gospel, what is the nature of God's grace, uh, what has Christ done for us, who are we as a result, what is our identity in Christ. And, and that foundation then was called an apostolic foundation, which Paul would then refer back to. So they would establish that foundation, and then in many cases, they would actually move on. Sometimes they would stay in place for years and build on that foundation. Other times they would lay the foundation, they would put elders in place, and they would leave. And they would say, now it's up to you to build on that foundation. 
And yet, uh, when the churches drifted, as, as they often do, full of imperfect people, especially right out of the gate, you don't even have a concept of like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is, what is a church? What's it supposed to look like? Churches would drift, but what Paul would do is he would come back and appeal to what we would call the apostolic foundation that was laid. Hey, other people have come and built on this, uh, but remember the foundation. And so over time then, things are built on the foundation. But if you're uh, building your life, or even if you think about us building a church community uh, as a building, by the time you get to the second floor or the third floor, if you see things that are off, that are wrong, that are uh, unstable, uh, that maybe even could be leaning toward false or heretical or just very unhelpful, what you do is you go back to the foundation again. Say, hey, let's, let's take off some of that stuff. Let's get back to the foundation and let's build again on that. So this foundation, this apostolic foundation, understanding the gospel of Jesus, understanding the nature of God's grace as it applies to us, uh, understanding our identity in Christ, then becomes the foundation for everything else that we want to do. Uh, we want to be sort of this spirit-filled, vibrant, uh, missional church that sees the gospel uh, taken to uh, neighborhoods and to nations. Uh, but all of that actually starts and is built upon uh, what Paul would call a firm foundation that should be built in the, into the heart of every church and every follower of Jesus. Um, so that's, that's the heart behind this, is we want to um, lay a firm foundation. For some of you, it's per perhaps uh, revisiting or shoring up a foundation that's already been laid uh, in your life. And really, uh, our, we, we want to take hold of the fullness of, of life, the fullness of the purposes, Paul says, for which Christ has taken hold of us. He's sought us. He's rescued us out of darkness. He's grabbed hold of us. And now there's a sense in which we can turn around and sort of grab hold of Him, grab hold of the purposes that God has for us in God. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit more about uh, that analogy of a foundation as we continue. But uh, that foundation starts at its most basic level by understanding who God is, getting an image of that, and then understanding who we are uh, in light of that. Uh, here's who God is. Here's what God has done through cross and resurrection as the, the culmination. And now here's who I am, uh, bless you, in light of the cross and the resurrection. Uh, my, my identity, the uh, infinite and eternal God, the incomprehensible and unseen God. Scripture says no one has ever seen God. We, we cannot fully comprehends who He is, but He's come and revealed Himself to us, to, to a, a dark, broken, rebellious, uh, what we would call sinful humanity, set in opposition against Him, lost in confusion and clever guesses as to whether or not God exists, and, and if He does, what is He like? Into that fog and confusion, God has revealed Himself in Christ. Uh, by living a life that we can see, uh, and, and all of the, the healing and the parables and the, the teachings and all of that exposes the nature of God, what He is like, uh, and, and the story that we're living in. And then uh, He went and He died in our place. Scripture says, for our sin. He took our uh, brokenness and darkness 
and sin upon himself. And after dying under the weight of that sin, he was resurrected. Brought back to life and and conquering Satan's sin and death. That all of the powers that we were, in, in a sense, subject to, powerless to overcome, have been conquered through cross and resurrection. And now God is reconciling the world back to himself in Christ and, and um, bringing us into his kingdom, both now and for eternity. The eternal kingdom of God now has wide open doors that we can come and walk through out from under this dark world and, and the wrath and judgment of God that naturally it hangs over a dark and sinful world. He says, there's, there's a way out of that. The way has opened up for you to step into the kingdom of God. Um, and, and as we do that, something in us changes. Uh, something in us shifts. There is uh, a clear line uh, of demarcation between who you, wore, who you were before Jesus, before stepping into the kingdom, and who you are, as the scriptures say, in Christ, as you are in the kingdom. And, and so we want to explore that a little bit and, and start a conversation around identity. How do we perceive ourselves uh, in Christ and what difference does it make? Uh, you can imagine, if you can, that uh, on, on, a, on a dark winter night, you were grabbed off the street um, and you were taken to a theater. And you were brought in, and as you're brought into this dark theater, you can tell, oh, there's, there's hundreds of people in this theater. You can hear all the kind of quiet murmurings and the, and the hum of, hundreds of people sort of settling in their seats and whispering to one another. And there's this stage that's just lit up with, with spotlights. And there's a few props on the stage and kind of a basic scene set, but it's just a nature scene. It doesn't really mean much to you. And imagine that you're just brought right up onto the stage and thrown there, and you can feel the heat of the lights, and you can't see them, but you can sort of feel hundreds of eyes looking at you, and your skin's sort of starting to crawl a little bit, and, and the person who dragged you there just says, act. Go ahead. The people are waiting. Act. Go. Well, the first thing that would happen to me is that I would have a heart attack, and I, would, I might die, like actually die on the stage. I don't know. I don't know how you would react if you didn't have a heart attack. Um, my sense is that you would probably feel some level of paralysis, right? You'd be sort of frozen in your tracks. Okay, what do you mean? I don't understand whose stage I'm on. I don't know what story I'm in. And I don't know who I'm supposed to be within that story? Those are the questions you would be wrestling with in that moment. Uh, Red-faced, heart-pounding, I don't know what to do because I don't know who I am. And in some sense, those basic questions that you would be wrestling with on that stage in the dark theater on a dark winter night 
are some, somehow fundamental questions that every human being has to answer of the life that we're leading. Whose stage am I on? What story am I a part of? And who am I within that story? Every one of us has to answer those questions, and we answer them in different ways. Uh, the secular sort of atheist narrative uh, that marks our the kind of mainstream culture in the Western world has answers to all of those questions. Well, whose stage are we on? Well, we have a story. The, the universe emerged from nothing. It came out of nothingness by accident. Everything is governed by random chance. Uh, life came about in its beginnings by accident, through random chance. It has been shaped by forces like survival of the fittest, but ultimately it is random chance in a, a meaningless vacuum. So whose stage am I on? Well, it's nobody's stage. What story am I living? Well, it's an open-ended sort of meaningless story. So you just go and kind of make it whatever you want it to be. You go and pursue whatever you want. You make up the purpose of life, although we kind of know there isn't really a purpose of life. But at the same time, you can just kind of go and, and make it whatever you want. In fact, I think that's why we were attracted to sort of the, the secular or atheist frame in the beginning, because it looked like a blank check. Well, if those things are true, then that, that tells me whose stage I'm on, no one's. It tells me what story I'm living. It's a meaningless story. I can do, oh, who am I? Well, I'm an accident. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a randomly mutated accident. I'm, I'm a highly evolved animal. I can do whatever I want. And so a lot of the behavior uh, that sometimes shocks us within secular culture uh, shouldn't really be shocking if you understand the story that they're living, the stage that they're on, and who they perceive themselves to be. If that's the true story of the universe, you're going to act in a certain way. I was thinking this week as we come up on 9-11 about that, that day, that tragic day in, in American history. And as I was thinking about that and reflecting on that, I, I was realizing that those men too had a story that they believed. They had to answer those same questions uh, about reality. Well, whose stage am I on? Well, it's Allah. This is, this is His stage. Well, whose story am I living? Well, it's Allah's story and Muhammad. Muhammad is His prophet. And He helped us see the true story that we're living in. Well, well who am I? Well, well I'm a, a follower of Muhammad. I, I, I'm a follower of Allah, and I have a chance to be the hero of this story. By giving up my life and taking some of the enemies of Allah with me, I can be the hero of this story. And so again, what was shocking to all of us, but perhaps particularly shocking to secular culture, perhaps shouldn't surprise us that much when we understand the story they were living. They had to answer, whose stage am I on? What story am I in? 
And what role do I play within that story? Uh, Let's bring it back again to the crowded theater. You're back under the lights. Hundreds of murmuring voices are waiting for you to act. And I want you to imagine that as you're frozen there, paralyzed by embarrassment, at least I would be, I want you to imagine that the same person who dragged you up onto the stage, that director kind of walked up onto the stage and leaned over and whispered into your ear and said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you, this is a nativity play. Tonight's Christmas Eve. Everyone's here to watch the nativity play. Here here come the other actors out onto the stage now. This backdrop is a field and you're one of the shepherds. And then they walked off the stage. Well, instantly, a hundred things would come together in your mind. I know now who I am. I know whose stage I'm on. I know what the occasion is. I know the story that I'm living, and I know who I am in the story. And so instantly, you could you know, grab a staff or whatever you found around you and just start playing the part. You would know what to do. All of that confusion and paralysis would evaporate with a few pieces of simple information. Uh, and the same thing is true of uh, following Jesus. So much of what we do in the church, in our discipleship, in our, um, in our reading times and whatever it is, we're, we're opening up the Bible, we're learning the Bible, we're teaching the Bible. Why? Because in the opening pages of Scripture, it tells us whose stage we're on. Who created the stage and, and what sort of drama is it set for? Well, we, we learn that. And, and everything from the first chapter to the last chapter, from Genesis to Revelation, is telling us what story we're living. And in the brilliant nature of Scripture, we're actually in the middle of that story. So we see the beginning leading up to now. We kind of know in some sense how it ends. And then there's this little gap. And, and you live in that little gap. In, in Acts chapter 29 and chapter 30 and chapter 40 and waiting for Jesus' return and all that comes with that. The, the reason, one of the reasons that we study Scripture and teach Scripture and engage in it so often in the way that we do is because it tells us whose stage we're on and what sort of story we're living. Uh, and not only that, Scripture also tells us what role we are to play within that story. And that can make all the difference. If you go back to the nativity example, even if you know, hey, this stage belongs to, to you know, it, the church or whatever, and all these people are here for Christmas Eve, and this is a nativity story, if, if they stop there and they didn't tell you who you were within the nativity story, you still wouldn't know what to do. You would feel more comfortable. Okay, I kind of understand the surroundings. I understand the story that I'm in. I'm not totally lost and confused, but think about the difference between the director whispering in your ear, oh, you're one of the shepherds, or you're Herod. Both part of the nativity story, very different roles that they play. So not only do we need to study Scripture and understand the grand story first, we also need to understand who we are within that grand narrative redemptive storyline of Scripture, the story of God rescuing and redeeming uh, the entire cosmos 
starting with humanity in and through cross and resurrection. If you know that, uh, then you know how to act. And the Bible actually has a ton to say about who we are in Christ. About who we are from the, from the moment that Jesus rescues us and we surrender our lives to Him and acknowledge the cross and resurrection, something that was done for us when we were enemies of God, then, then something shifts. And the Scripture, in particular the New Testament, Uh, has a lot to say. If I can grasp who I am in the story, I know how to navigate God's good world toward the new heavens and the new earth. If I miss that, I can tend to flounder a bit. Okay, I know I'm in the nativity story, but what am I supposed to do? Who am I? What's my role to play? There are many scriptures that speak to this. Uh, One of countless examples, if you still have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, it says this. This is one of the many things Paul says in laying a foundation in the churches. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are? Now just stop right there for a second. Isn't that interesting? That that he wants you to know. Don't you know that you yourselves are? And there's a lot of ways he could continue that sentence. Uh, I think we have a slide for this. This is, this is what he says. Don't you know that you yourselves are, in this case he's highlighting, you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Now that's who you are, but that then has implications about how you live. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. And then in the verses that follow, he uses the same logic again in, uh, in the verses that follow multiple times. Here's another example. Don't you know that your bodies are? Well, if you know what your body is, then you're going to know what to do with your body. If you don't know what your body is, or you have a mistaken, don't you know that, I, I mistyped it, I see that now. Don't you know that your bodies are, and then he continues, members of Christ himself. That's something that's true of your physical body. But then the implications flow out of that. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? In this case, he's, talking, he's speaking to the Corinthian uh, vice of, of temple prostitution. Well, no, like it, it, you need to know that, but notice that what Paul notice how Paul gets about it. He laid a foundation in the church in Corinth. He leaves to go plant other churches. Other people are in charge. He hears rumors of what's going on, crazy stuff. You think our church is messed up. You should see Corinth. My goodness, some of the things that were happening there. So he comes back, but when he comes back, he appeals to that foundation. He appeals to the basic things that are true. He appeals to your identity. He's not appealing to Old Testament law. You're not under the law anymore. He's not saying, thou shalt not unite thyself with a a temple prostitute. No. He's not putting a law on people or just saying, this is, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. Don't you know that you yourselves are? He's appealing to their identity. If you know who you are, you know what to do. Oh my gosh, my, 
my physical body and the other aspects of who I am are, are, are part of the body of Christ. Well, if that's true and I, and I can see that through the fog, I get a moment of clarity. Well, of course it doesn't make sense to go and do that. I can't unite something that's part of Christ with, with this thing over here. It just doesn't make sense anymore. Suddenly we gain clarity on how to live not through religious law, which Paul says is over and done with, but by understanding who we are in Christ. If you are are a highly evolved animal, then there's a whole bunch of things that, that make sense that you can go and do. Destroying other people, sleeping around, whatever the examples are that that Paul's getting at here. Of course you can go and do that. You're just a highly evolved animal. That's who you are. That's the story you're living. Go live it. But if that's not who you are and that's not the story you're living, then, then things begin to shift within the human heart. Those things no longer make sense. In fact, in the power of the gospel, when you recognize who they are, by some mystery, they've already begun to lose their power in your life. Many of those things begin to wither and die and fall away simply by recognizing, this is who I already am. So, of course, that doesn't make sense. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's something that you recognize in your heart and your mind. This is what's actually true about me. This is how I feel about myself when I wake up in the morning. This is what Scripture says is actually true of me. And this set of things over here is way easier for me to believe and grab onto and live out. But if I can grasp what is actually counterintuitively true of me in Christ, then then it shifts everything else in my life. No, 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 no. You're not Herod. You're one of the shepherds. Oh. Okay, then I'm going to lay that stuff aside and I'm going to engage in these things over here. I now know who I am. If you know who you are, you will know what to do. This is another example from uh, Titus. Paul's writing to Titus uh, and he says this. He uses the example of being a soldier. He says, no one serving as a soldier gets mixed up in civilian affairs. And in the verses that follow, he uh, brings out another example of being an athlete who's running a race to win a prize. He brings out this example of being a farmer who has this mission of of planting and and reaping and harvesting and the rest. Uh, Why is he doing that? Why are those images so helpful? Because it's helping you see, bless you, who you are in the story, in, in the grand narrative of the story. If I know who I am, then I know what to do. You can picture in your mind a war, whichever war is your favorite. Everyone probably has a favorite war. Just imagine that war in your mind. There's soldiers and there's civilians, right? Imagine what happens when soldiers on both sides are fighting And a civilian selling tomatoes on the street corner thinks, oh, maybe I can be a soldier. And they stroll out into the middle of the battlefield wearing their 
polo shirt and khaki pants, depending on which war and time period you're imagining. That would be a disaster. That would be an absolute disaster if civilians were just kind of innocently skipping out onto the battlefield. Well, maybe I can do this. No, you're not a soldier. You've not been trained. You're not equipped. You're not, you have no form of armor. You don't have a weapon. You're not a soldier. You're a civilian. For a civilian to get mixed up in the affairs of soldiers is a disaster. Paul says the reverse is also true. Uh, uh, imagine uh, that, that you're in that you're a soldier, and, and that your job is to find and engage the enemy within a certain city. Well, if you just kind of pretend that you're a civilian, and you're still wearing your uniform, but oh, I'll just kind of set, set my weapon down and go, and maybe I'll go and buy tomatoes on the street corner. Well, that's going to be a disaster too, because when the enemy comes to engage you, you're not going to last very long. Oh yeah, there, there's one of the soldiers, he's wearing the uniform, let's take him down and you're in the middle of buying tomatoes or whatever. C- civilians should not get mixed up in the affairs of soldiers. Soldiers shouldn't get mixed up in, in civilian affairs. If you take your eyes off the mission and you forget who you are in, in the story, you can get taken out. If you were to suddenly be dropped in a modern-day war zone, Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever it would be, you would instantly need to know, who am I? What am I supposed to do? Who I am affects what I'll know what to do if if I know who I am. If I know I'm a soldier, then I'm going to act in a certain way in every situation. I'm going to have a certain set of attitudes and discipline and engaging, and I'm going to have my eyes out for the enemy, I'm not going to think and act like a civilian. It it would be weird if I did. Uh, Some of you know that before I was a pastor, uh, I was actually a military lawyer. And and when I woke up this morning and I was thinking about the teaching, all of a sudden this line popped into my head from the, the world of military law, conduct unbecoming of an officer. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I have, because it's in the UCMJ. Conduct unbecoming of an officer. It's, it's, it's like a military crime that's described as conduct unbecoming of an officer. You're not acting like a soldier should. You're not acting like an officer should. And you can go and, and read the passage. That's basically what it's saying. Like you, you, can be, you, you can get in legal trouble in the military for doing that. Because once you know that you're a soldier, once you know that I'm an officer in the military, it comes with a whole world of expectations and a way of acting and behaving. What are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? That doesn't make sense based on who you are. It's in, it's in the law. We're not under the law. Praise the Lord. But I just thought of that. That example came rushing to mind. So, so it's almost like Paul's coming and just saying, you're a child of God. You have new life in Christ. This is who you are. And that other stuff all kind of falls into the category of like conduct unbecoming of a child of God. It just doesn't really fit. It just doesn't make sense once you know who you are. This is why I think uh, almost all of the New Testament letters 
From by the time you get through the Gospels, you have the book of Acts, which is describing the birth of the early church. By the time you hit Romans, which is the start of the letters, all the way through Romans to Revelation, the start of every letter starts with your identity. It starts by speaking to who you are. So if you just flip through your Bible to the start of every letter, you're going to read identity statements. Who's Paul writing to? To the saints in Ephesus. To God's holy people in Corinth. To the faithful in Galatia. To those loved by God in such and such a place. To the holy, to the blameless, to the exiles, to to those uh, who are faithful. I think Paul's favorite is to those who are in Christ. We'll talk about that later. His favorite identity statement of who you are. The the letters are starting that way. And the letters were written to everyone, including you. Who's Paul writing about in there? It's really easy for us to read that and just say, well, who are the saints? Stop and think about it. Catholic Church can tell you who the saints are. It's those famous people from church history that are in stained glass windows. Those are the saints. Well, who, are the, who are the holy ones among us? I, I don't know. Maybe the, the pastor? Then again, probably not. I, I, do we have any holy ones? I, I, I don't know. Who, who, are, who are the faithful? Who are the loved? Those loved by God as an identity. You might be sitting here this morning and saying, oh, I think there's some of those people in here. I, I, th- I think some of these people seem like they're loved by God. Some of these people do seem faithful. No, no, no. He's talking about you. He's saying, in Christ, you are a saint. You are a holy one. You are blameless in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Peter and Paul and the others who wrote these letters are speaking of you. So so the letters start with your identity and sometimes they just continue that way. Probably one of the most popular letters in the entire New Testament is, is Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians starts by talking about who you are in Christ, and then it just doesn't stop. There's multiple chapters of like, here's what Jesus did, and here's who you are as a result. Here's what Jesus did, and here's who you are now. You used to be like this. That's not you anymore. Now you're this. This is who you are over and over again. And you're halfway through the book and hinging into the second half of the book. And as as the book rounds that corner, Paul basically just says, hey, in light of who you are, just let go and live a life that makes sense based on who you are. This is my paraphrase. In, in light of all that that I've just said, just go and live a life worthy of the call you've received. You know who you are. Now, now just go do that. And he helps you see. He has a couple chapters of like, this is what a Christian marriage looks like. This is what the dynamics between mother and father and child and home. And this is how you can go and live out your identity. But realize that you're living out your identity. That's, that's what he's calling you to do. If you know that you're 
you are a child of God, then you go and live that way. And so the Scriptures say, you are a disciple. Disciple of Jesus. Not second class or something. You, you are a disciple of Jesus. You are a saint. You, you are holy and blameless. You are in exile. You're not home yet. Don't settle yet. You are loved by God. That's your identity. I wonder what it would be like to just wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and have my first thought be, oh, look at me. I'm loved by God. That, that's not what I think when I look in the mirror in the morning. But he's saying, that, no, no, that's your identity. You are one who is loved by God. I'm high today. I'm low today. I'm feeling really good. Oh, I'm, I'm mixed up in the wrong stuff. I'm what I, you're loved by God. No matter where you're at, as your identity. You are chosen, Paul says. You are faithful. You are called. You are sanctified. You are in Christ. That's who you are. These things mark you, define you, describe who you are apart from anything that you do or fail to do. Everything else flows out of that, which is why the foundation needs to be built on it. You settle that first before anything else. On the flip side, if you miss that, if you misunderstand your identity or miss it completely and, and conceive of Christianity as some sort of law-based, rule-based thing where I just do the best that I can, it, everything else in life gets harder. Everything. During um, our sabbatical, we took a month and a half long road trip, which took us through a whole bunch of places, but one of them was Boise. And so as we were going through Boise, Idaho, we stopped and stayed for a few nights with Brandon and Paige Albright, who some of you will remember, they were around years ago in the church. They moved like four years ago or something like that. Um, he's, Brandon is like seven feet tall and a pilot. Uh, and Paige, his wife, is normal height, and uh, she's a therapist, a counselor. And so we were chatting with them about uh, chatting with Paige specifically about, hey, what do you do, and how's your counseling practice going, and what's it like to operate in that world, and how do you do that and help people without like taking on everybody's stuff, and we just, we just wanted to know. And she said something really interesting. She said, you know what? All the issues of all my clients almost always boil down to the exact same thing. Identity in Christ. And I thought, really? Like, think about that. Think about how different all of us are in our genetics, in our wiring, in our makeup, in our family history, in our personal history, in the things that we've done, in the things that have been done to us, in the wounds that we carry, in the issues that we have. Think of all the different reasons you might walk into that room. It would look like we have nothing in common when you say, this is why I'm here. This is, who, this is what's happened to me. This is why I'm here. This is what I'm hoping to get out of counseling. They all, it would be a stunning diversity in this room. And that from her perspective, she said, I think it's all boiling back down to identity in Christ. So part of her job is to lovingly walk with people and, and sort of shepherd them back into a place of understanding who they are in Christ. If you can get that, if, if you can settle that, 
I think there's a thousand other little things that will curiously start to fall into place. That's not something that we can settle in one Sunday uh, or, or even in a series, but it's a journey that we can begin together. We can start that conversation. And so that's what we're going to do this Sunday. And over the next two Sundays, we're going to start that conversation together. And we're going to trust that it's not going to end there. That you're going to continue to walk with Jesus. That the Holy Spirit is going to continue to sort and settle those things in your life long after we're done talking about it. So as we close this morning, uh, I just want to read a couple things over you that are true of you in Christ. Uh, and so these things are true. If you belong to Jesus, these things are true of you and much more. But these things uh, for starters. So if you want, I'll invite you to clear off your lap unless there's a kid on your lap, they can stay there. Uh, but if you can clear off your lap if you want. Uh, you can close your eyes if you want and just take a couple deep breaths. And before we head to worship, the worship team can come back up. But before we head to worship, just in the presence of the Lord, I want to just take a moment and just plant a couple of these seeds. Just kind of draw our eyes gently back to some of the things that Scripture says uh, are true uh, of you. You are an image bearer of God. You are not a highly evolved animal. You are not an accident. But you are full of the dignity and the beauty that comes from being made in His image. That is true of you. It has always been true. It will always be true. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Before you were conceived, you were an idea in His mind. You were made and fashioned with intention. You are not ugly. You are not broken. You are not misshapen. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. The culture's, the culture's standards of beauty are irrelevant to you. They do not apply. That is simply not how God sees you. You are loved by God. Even if you have yet to surrender to Him, even if you are still His enemy, you are loved by God. He has never stopped loving you. He died for you out of love. It was the most natural thing in the world for God to die for you in love because He is love. If you're sitting here this morning and you have yet to surrender to Jesus, you can do that this morning if you want to. We, we would love to pray with you if, if you want that. 
But if you're sitting here this morning and you've already surrendered to Jesus and you've placed your trust in the cross and the resurrection and Jesus' return, then these things are also true of you. You are chosen, known, sought after, longed for. You might remember coming and knocking and seeking for God, but in the same moment, we can also say that God was seeking you, knocking and and longing for what was lost. Like a lost coin, like a lost sheep, He came for you. So we can say as part of your identity, you are sought after. You are known. You were chosen before the foundation of the world to glorify God in Christ. You are holy. You are blameless. You are righteous in His sight. I'm going to read that again. You are holy. You are blameless. You are righteous in His sight. You are not soiled. You are not dirty and covered in sin. You are not a failure. You are not a fraud. You are purified and washed clean. Sanctified and set apart from the world. There is no debt to repay. There is no guilt to bear. There is no shame to carry. It has been laid upon the cross and and you've been given something else in its place. He wants you to see that, to know that. You are a child of God. No longer orphans in the world, spiritually wandering from place to place. No longer slaves to Satan, sin, and death. No. God went down to the slave market and paid for you, bought you out of slavery so that we might no longer be slaves, but sons and daughters. You have a place in the household of God, an unshakable place. You have an inheritance with your name on it. You are a new creation. When God adopted you in, you moved from the family line of Adam with its legacy of sin and rebellion with an inheritance of death. And you were removed from that family line and you were placed in a new family line. The line of Abraham, a child of faith, a child of God, with Jesus as the head of that family. We're told that he was the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and you are one of those brothers and sisters. You are not a slave. You are not second class. You are a child of God, and you are a new creation. The things that were true of the old creation are no longer true of you. Because you are a child of God. A new creation not bound to the old. You now have a hope in resurrection. 
that one day you will rise again from the dead, not for judgment and a second death, but by the glory of God to resurrection for eternal life. God wants you to experience that by His grace so that His grace will be fully enjoyed and put on display for all eternity. Because of who you are, you have hope beyond anything this life has to offer. What we see around us is ashes and dust, a flower that fades, a mist that evaporates in the morning sun. We live in a shadowy, pain-filled, fallen world, but in the midst of that world, you are a child of God, awaiting your inheritance, destined for resurrection, an unending love in God's glory and in God's presence. If you grasp that, it will change the way that you live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning, stand before you this morning, and we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to just grasp the magnitude and nature of the love of God in Christ. That we would see how wide and how deep and how transforming your love is. And and Lord, we recognize that we live in a world um, full of lies, full of half-truths that that um, settle in our minds and in our hearts. But as we worship this morning, Lord, would you begin, if not finish, then Lord, we pray you would begin the work of uprooting toxic things from the the center of our hearts, from the center of our minds, from the center of our thinking. That, That I believe things about myself that feel absolutely settled and true. But as I come before you in Christ and open the scriptures, I find they simply aren't true. There are um, dark things, twisted things, sad things that I believe about myself that are not true in Christ. So would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you work among us now? We're going to lift up our hearts to you. We're going to worship and we pray that you would just come in in gentleness and meekness and humility and in power and say that thing right there that you're believing about yourself, it's not true. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Let me tell you what is true now. We look to you in all things, Jesus. Come and speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.